Well, we're continuing our look today through the New Testament letter of 1 John. 1 John is written by the disciple or the apostle John. Uh, So one of the disciples of Jesus, the same one who wrote the Gospel of John, and he also happened to write 2nd and 3rd John. Well, in his letter, he is writing to a church or group of churches that has gone through something recently. That a group of people from within the church broke away from the church, abandoning the core principles of the faith. And so throughout the letter, one of the main things that John is trying to do is to encourage the Christians in the church to know what is true faith and what is false faith. How can I assure you that you are truly believers in Jesus, that you are in the right, and how can I show that the people who have broken away are truly in error and have left what we have held to since the beginning? And so throughout the letter, this is what John is doing, and we've seen it for the past few weeks, that he is separating, here are these people, and here are these people. Here are the ones whom God has saved. Here are the ones who have broken away. And there's no difference here today. He's showing us again, how do we know we are of God? How do we know we are of God's family? How do we know that we have not gone astray? And so with that in mind, I'd encourage you to open up your Bibles. We're near the very back of the Bible in 1 John, chapter 3, verses 11 through 24. 1 John 3, 11 through 24, as we continue to think through this idea of distinguishing truth from error. Hear the word of the Lord from 1 John 3, 11 through 24. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers whoever does not abide in whoever does not love abides in death everyone who hates his brother is a murderer and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him by this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us 
by the Spirit whom he has given us. Let us pray. (coughs) Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and that you speak to us. We thank you that we are not left alone, listening, trying to interpret signs and symbols, but you have clearly spoken to us and you have preserved your word throughout the generations that we know how to hear from you. And Father, I pray that you would please pour out your spirit on me, that I would proclaim your word faithfully, that in spite of my own weakness and sin, I pray that you would please let the word go forth in spirit and in truth today, and would we have open hearts and minds to receive your word so that we would love Jesus more, and so that we would see your love for us, and that we would be filled with the spirit to love one another. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So our passage today points us again to distinguishing truth from error, and we're looking especially at the call to love, to love one another. So I guess it's fitting we're all wearing red, you know, the Valentine's Day color of love, but we are thinking about loving one another. But in this passage in particular, John's pointing us in a few directions uh, that are not just general, but more specific. So specifically, John is trying to get us to think of who we are to love. Then he wants us to think, how are we to love? And then it's, how can we be helped in this kind of love? What help do we have to love like this? So John finishes the passage from last week. We looked at it last week, chapter 3, in the beginning. And in verse 10 is where we stopped last week. And here's what he wrote in verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So he gave two signs for us to look at to see who is a child of God versus a child of the devil. And last week we looked at the first sign, that is they practice righteousness, that Christians try to live godly lives in the strength that God gives. So that was last week. This week we're looking at that second sign that we are to love our brothers. To love our brothers. John notes in verse 11 that this is really nothing new. It's from the beginning that this has been the message of Jesus ever since Jesus came. And we can see this in 1 John that you can kind of feel like we're on repeat. That love one another is a repeated exhortation throughout the letter. That we saw it in chapter 2, that we are to love one another. We'll see it again in chapter 4, that we are to love one another. And so we're left thinking, man, okay, John, we got it. Love one another. But John likes to keep it fresh. And he keeps it fresh with some really good humor in verse 12. It's one of the funniest lines in the Bible, in my opinion. He says this, We should not be like Cain. Hmm. We should not be like Cain. I like to imagine that John was dictating his letter to a scribe, as many people in ancient times did. And he was dictating, he said, We should not be like Cain. And the scribe looks back at him and goes, Do you think we really need to say that? that we should not be like the guy who murdered his brother? Do you think it's necessary to say that? But as we look, John isn't here just trying to give us the most obvious example in the world. He is trying to get at the motivation of Cain. He asks, and why did Cain murder his brother Abel? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Cain did not murder Abel because Abel slept with Cain's wife. Cain did not murder Abel because Abel punched him in the face. 
Cain did not murder Abel because he got Abel in trouble with his parents. See, we don't know how old Cain and Abel were, so I guess they could have been 12. I guess they could have been 100. We're not really sure. But what we know is that Cain did not murder Abel because of something Abel did wrong. He murdered his brother because of what his brother did right. That Cain did not like Abel's righteousness before God. John says that this hatred of righteousness is a sign that someone is not a Christian. It shows that that person is a person of the world, and he connects it to last week that they are children of the devil. He says Cain is of the evil one. That's why John writes in verse 13, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. That the world, like Cain, hates righteousness. And it especially hates righteousness when it reveals the sinfulness of other people. See, it is a mark of the world, a mark of the devil to hate righteousness. And so John is saying, do not be like Cain who hates righteousness. That instead, we are to love our brothers and sisters. And that's John's focus here in these verses in 11 through 15 That it's not just love one another, it is to love brothers and sisters in Christ. That Christians should love fellow Christians. Now that doesn't nullify the command throughout scripture that we are to love all people. That Jesus said that we are to love our enemies. But specifically here, John is saying one way you can look to see if someone is a child of God is do they love their fellow Christians? It seems that perhaps the breakaway group was not loving fellow Christians. And so John wants them to see how important it is to love fellow Christians. And he does so by repeatedly using the word brother. Brother can also mean brothers and sisters. Then he wants his readers to see how much they have in common with all other Christians. You see, in light of previous passages, one of the things that we have in common with fellow Christians is the same family trait of righteousness. It's the very thing that Cain hated in his brother, righteousness. But we, as Christians, are called to love fellow Christians in their righteousness. We are to do that, showing that we have passed out of death and into life, that we are God's children now. Now, John is presenting us an idealized version of Christianity for us to strive for, where all Christians are practicing righteousness. The problem is... um, We know from our own personal experience and the experience of interacting with fellow Christians that we don't always practice righteousness perfectly. Abel somehow gets off easy. That we meet Abel, he does one wonderful thing, and he gets murdered. So we don't know, like, was Abel a bad dude the day before, or did he mess up on occasion? All we know is the one act. Unfortunately, in our own lives and in the lives of others, we we know that other people do bad things. And so we can poke holes in the righteousness of other people saying, well, they didn't do this, they didn't do that, they didn't do this, or I've seen them do that. John here isn't trying to think in those terms. He's thinking in the general terms that Christians are those people who should, by and large, be practicing righteousness. And that we are to love our brothers and sisters in Christ, knowing that they too are trying to live godly lives. And so what these verses make us reflect on is this. Do we love our brothers and sisters who live godly lives even when their godliness exposes our own sin? 
Do we love our brothers and sisters in Christ when they practice righteousness, even if that righteousness makes us look bad? See, that seems to be Cain's problem. Cain was jealous of his brother's righteousness. Rather than seeing that Abel pleased God and saying, Praise God, you are doing great, my godly brother. He saw the godliness of Abel only in light of himself, showing that in this competition of two, I am second and I want to be first. And so I want to get this righteous guy out of the picture so I seem the most righteous. And he did whatever was necessary to get rid of the righteousness of his brother. He murdered him. Now, I would imagine that we are con- when we are confronted with the righteousness of fellow Christians making us look bad, we may not jump to murder, perhaps. So the way our modern culture tends to deal with looking at the righteousness of others and hating it is we tend to scoff. <sighs> look at that person over there praying again. Who do they think they are so holy? <sighs> there they are again, reading their Bible to their kids. Who, jeez, making us look bad over here. There they are again in church again. They seem to never miss a Sunday. There they are volunteering at the hospital or at the city mission again. I just can't seem to beat them. We start to cut them down. Saying, oh, well, we can't do that. They're coming over and they're holy and they don't want to do that. Now, a lot of times we can see that in self-righteous ways. That we probably all know Christians who really are self-righteous jerks and shove their righteousness in other people's faces. But what he's saying here is that genuine righteousness can still be hated by people because it makes our sins look more obvious. John is saying that we should love the righteousness in other people. We shouldn't hate the righteousness in other people because when we do that, we are like Cain. We are hating our brothers, which John says is like being a murderer. So instead of hating brothers and sisters, we are to love righteousness in them because we recognize it is the same family trait that God has put in us. And yeah, someone else might be more righteous than us, but that is reason to praise God. To praise God and say, thank you that this person can be a godly model, not someone to make me feel ashamed that the righteousness in our brothers and sisters in Christ should lead us to love them, not to scoff at them or to hate them. Okay, if we are to love our brothers and sisters, well, how are we to love them? If we recognize that they are living in this way, what are we to do to love? Well, in verses 11 through 15, John really only gives us one clear command, and that's don't be like Cain. And if you want to live your life with don't be like Cain, you get to do just about anything but murder. So John needs to clarify what don't be like Cain is. And he tells us, here's what love is in verse 16. By this we know love, that he, that is Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Love is laying down your life for others. That's not always what we mean by love. See, love typically means something else, like I really like something. For example, I love chocolate ice cream. Is that love? No. Love can mean infatuation, like, oh, I just love her so much. No, that's infatuation. That's not love. Love can mean I really like what that person does for me. Oh, I really love the way this person you know, cuts my grass, or I really love the way my doctor takes care of me. 
You're loving what that person does for you. That's not love as it's described here. Love is not so much a feeling. Love is a decision. It is an attitude. It is willing, genuine self-sacrifice. It's caring more about the needs of someone else than your own needs. It is inconveniencing yourself for someone else. And Jesus here is the ultimate example given to us. That he laid down his life for us, dying willingly in our place for us. Believers are called to that same kind of sacrifice. So John says at the end of verse 16 that we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But we read that and we're like, what are the odds that we're actually going to have to die for a fellow Christian? I mean, really. I suppose years from now, hopefully not too soon, that may happen, but it doesn't seem realistic to us. It seems impractical. It seems like a high standard that we're never going to have to actually do. I agree, which is why it's great that John included verse 17. This is what John writes. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? See, John immediately applies this grand life-sacrificing principle to -to day-to-day simple stuff. That true, we may never be called to to lay down our literal lives for someone. But we will be called to to lay down parts of our lives for others. And that can happen in a few ways. One is the way John mentioned here, that we may be called to love others by giving up material goods and money for other brothers and sisters in need. Well, we lay down things that we think are ours and give them to someone else knowing they are in need. That is sacrifice. That is laying down part of your life, part of what is yours for someone else. Will we put other people's needs ahead of our own? Will we care for the poor and the needy? Will we live with less so that others can have enough? John's asking us, will we lay down that part of our lives, our money and our possessions, to love others? Maybe it's not money. Maybe it's other things. Maybe it's our hobbies and our free time. See, I grew up in a culture of constant focus on free time and entertainment consumption. That's my generation. We're terrible. I'm sorry. I apologize to the world for our generation that we grew up living in a time where everything was about consume as much entertainment as you can and live for your free time. And we are the worst generation in the world about it. But we are going to be called to live up, to give up our free time for others. Do we hold and keep and protect our free time so that that is ours and we can do whatever we want or are we willing to lay some of that time down to care for someone in need? To visit someone in the hospital or someone who's shut in? To reach out to someone who might be hurting? To spend time with a fellow Christian just to talk or to pray? Are we willing to lay down our favorite television show, our favorite hobby, or a night out in order to spend it for someone else instead of ourselves? Are we willing to give up those things, to lay down our lives? Maybe it's something related to that. Maybe it's our comfort. 
See, a lot of us like to live lives in what I like to think of as we are nice people, in that we like to go around and not bother other people in hopes that we will not be bothered. And we like to have uh, small talk. So right when we start a conversation, we expect that it's going to go the way we want it to. And we kind of know the end of the conversation before it starts. Hey, how are you? I'm great. Thanks. Good to see you. Good weekend. Yeah, weather's great. And we move on. And nothing happened. It was just what we have to do in order to not bother someone else and be bothered by someone else. I had a friend in college, I remember hearing that they sat down early in the, do- in the cafeteria one morning, like 6 a.m., and they just sat there you know, by themselves. All the tables were open, and someone sat down right in front of them. It's like, hey, how are you? I'm terrible. The world is ending. And it was like, oh, jeez. I just wanted to eat my cereal in peace. Like, the, the bothering affected them. That's, this person had to give up comfort because they wanted to talk about something real. Are we as Christians willing to give up the relative safety of small talk to maybe talk about something uncomfortable? To talk about something deeper than the beautiful day? Are we willing to give that up? Knowing that it might involve confrontation, that, hey, I see this in your life and I don't think it's good. Or maybe the other way, are we willing to receive it? Are we willing to ask someone, hey, I'm really struggling with this, could you talk to me about it? Are we willing to have a deeper conversation than just, hi, how are you? See, John recognizes that this kind of sacrifice is hard. It's easier to say than it is to do, especially from the sanctuary of this sturdy pulpit up here. It's really easy to say. And so John writes this in verse 18. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. In deed and in truth. See, it's hard to love someone who is hurting. It is hard to love someone who is needy. It is hard to love someone who's hurt you. It's hard to sacrifice for someone who you don't know that well. It's really hard to lay down our lives for one another. But that's the kind of love God has shown us through Jesus. It's the kind of love we're called to show Christians and all people. That sacrificial love that we are to love by laying down our lives. But that's hard. And so John offers us help. He says, don't worry, I know this is hard, and I know you guys aren't doing it perfectly all the time, but there is help. There is help to love. Which is weird, because our culture likes to do this too. They like to offer help for love. You see, Christianity and the world have a, a somewhat similar view on things. That we all think love is good. That we really like love. But we also recognize that love is hard to do and find. The problem is that the path to get there is different. See, the world's advice to us when love is difficult is to follow your heart. To follow your heart and let your heart guide you to what you need to love. That the problem isn't so much that you're bad at loving, it's that you aren't loving the right thing. That once you find the right object to love... Love will be great. That's why we have things like The Bachelor and The Bachelorette, as we think, you know, if these really beautiful, wealthy people will just get together on a reality show, maybe, maybe they'll find someone 
Just maybe. Because what's holding them back is clearly that they haven't found the right person. See, Christianity tells us something a little different about love. That it's not the object of love that is the hard part of love. It's the subject. It is the one doing the loving. Here's what the Bible says about the heart from Jeremiah 17.9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's a beautiful Valentine's Day card. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. You see, in the Bible, the heart is often presented as the very source of evil rather than the compass that should guide us. And that's what John is saying in verses 19 through 21. That we must reassure or set at rest our hearts before God. See, in verse 19, we are told, do not follow your heart, fix your heart. You need to do something to your heart before God. And we see the reason why in verse 20. It says, whenever our heart condemns us. Our heart condemns us. It does not guide us. It does not need to be followed. It needs to be fixed. See, like we saw in verse 17, we can close our heart to brothers and sisters in Christ. We cannot show pity to them when they're in need. Though we know we should love fellow Christians, our sinful hearts can often prefer to condemn them rather than sacrifice for them. And so our heart shouts out against us, don't love that person. They're not worthy of love. Do not love them. And it can condemn us in that way. But it also can condemn us in a different way. It condemns not only the act of love, but our lack of love. That maybe our hearts condemn us for our selfishness and judgmental attitudes. Making us feel ashamed and turning inwards in shame rather than outwards in sacrifice. However our heart condemns us, our heart is not our help. It needs to be helped. And John says, here is the help. God is greater than our heart. And he knows everything. God is able to correct our hearts. And he knows how bad they are. He knows the twisted logic of our hearts that we don't want to love our fellow Christians because they're in the wrong or they've hurt us in the past. See, our sinful hearts are eager to point out the reasons why we shouldn't love other people. But God knows our hearts. He knows they like to condemn. He knows that we worry that there's no forgiveness for us. God knows all of this, and he says, no, I'll fix your heart. I will heal your heart and help you to love as Jesus loves. He doesn't want us to have condemning hearts. He wants us to have sacrificing hearts. And so we heard in our assurance of pardon from Romans 8.1 that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See, in his death, Jesus took the condemnation that our hearts deserve, that sinners hatefully executed him without cause, though he lived a perfect life of righteousness. They condemned him. And Jesus took that condemnation so that we would never have to take any condemnation. And so our sinful hearts are freed and forgiven, and we can come to God in prayer asking for the help we need to renew our hearts and show love to brothers and sisters as we should. And when our hearts are healed, we can come to God with in prayer with confidence. We come knowing our hearts have been cleansed by Jesus. 
We come knowing that we love righteousness, we love God's law, and we know we need to love one another. And so when we pray, God answers our prayers. Verse 22 is one of those many passages in the Bible where we read that God will answer whatever we ask of him. And we're sitting here like, well, I still don't have a million dollars or a pony. So what, what do you mean, God, by an, ask, you know, answer my prayers? Well, there's a context to it. And it's that we are loving others. God delights to answer the prayers that, are, that line up with what is best for his children. So when you hear that God will answer any prayer about loving one another, here's what you should hear. Imagine the joy a parent would feel if one of their children said, Hey, Mom or hey, Dad, can you help me do something nice for my brother or sister today? How would that parent feel hearing from their child that, Could you help me do something nice for my sibling? In the same way, will God not help us when we ask for his help to love our brothers and sisters? Will he not abundantly bless us to love them? Surely he will. And so by loving brothers and sisters in Christ, we are obeying our commandment to God. You see, Christianity 101 is presented here in verse 23. That Christians are called to believe in the name of Jesus. That is, he is who he says he is. And he does what he says he will do. And that we are to love one another. That's pretty much it. To believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And to sacrificially love one another. See, obedience to God's commands starts within the family of God. Because if we do not love our brothers and sisters who have also been saved by Jesus, who also abide in God, who also have the same Holy Spirit, then how are we going to love a world that hates us for our righteousness? Love starts in the family of God. And so today we express this unity of love within God's family through the Lord's Supper. We gather around the table to remember the one who died for us and showed us sacrificial love. And it is through that sacrificial love that we have been brought into the family. For we used to be like Cain, hating one another. But now, as John says, we have passed from death to life through the death of Christ. And so we gather around this table as a family, united, knowing that it is because of this death that we can live. It is because of his love that we can love. And we gather together as the family of God, bringing hearts broken, sinful hearts to him, saying, Lord, heal me, restore me, and strengthen me that I can love others as you have loved me. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the love you have shown us in Jesus Christ, the sacrificial love that you have given us and that we know is ours, that even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so, Father, we pray that you would please pour out your grace and your Holy Spirit on us in full measure, that we would love others. We know they are unlovely at times. We know they hurt us at times. But, God, you loved us while we were sinners. Help us to love well, knowing it is a sign that we are a part of your family. In Jesus' name, amen.